Hi investors, this is Danny with Investorly. At Investorly, we empower you to invest early in your financial future. In episode eight of A Conversation With, we welcome Markets and Mayhem, a professional trader and investor. We learn about his investing journey, his personal strategies, and the right mindset it takes to be a successful investor. He also explains some of his favorite stocks. To stay informed of upcoming episodes and receive our insightful weekly newsletter, subscribe at investorly.substack.com. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. How exactly did you get started investing? Was it in school? Was it a mentor you had? Was it somebody early in your life? And what, what drew you to investing initially? Sure, that's a great question, Danny. And uh, I'm all about investing early too. And I kind of got my start a little earlier on in life. So my dad was uh, an inventor. He um, was uh, always watching you know, CNBC or reading uh, Investor's Business Daily or the Wall Street Journal. So I always had you know, this sort of content all around me permeating my mind and uh, conversations even either hearing them in the background or having them directly with my father and so you know i started really getting interested in this stuff as a teenager and um you know i did a little bit of of sort of stock trading by proxy by then too um when we saw uh the sort of heating up of the dot-com boom um, I asked my dad to buy me $1,000 worth of Amazon and $1,000 worth of Yahoo in his account. And, you know, I would pay the cash to do it because I have a little bit of money since I've been working uh, since a young age. And, um, you know, he, he went ahead and did it. And then by the next day, they had almost doubled each one of them. That's kind of the height of that, that mania that we were in. And I said, okay, go ahead and sell them just because I don't think they're supposed to move like that. It doesn't really make sense to me. So, you know, he did. But that was kind of my very early start learning about investing, learning about trading, which I, I do a fair amount of trading as well. And, uh, you know, since then I got more serious about, um, you know, really learning about the stock market, learning about the economy, learning about some of the underlying components of the financial system. I'm very interested in commodities, credit markets, um, options, and, and, and sort of everything else that kind of goes into the periphery of moving uh, the equity market as well. And over time, I've just been sort of self-taught. Um, I like to get myself very immersed into these subjects. I guess you might call me an autodidact. I just like to really learn this stuff and uh, challenge myself. And I kind of have a, a bit of a hungry mind. So I always feel like I want to keep feeding it with information. So you know, I started off with stocks and then I learned more about options. And I learned more about uh, macroeconomics. Then I started to learn more about credit markets and commodities. And I've just kind of been building my knowledge base from there. And, uh, you know, with the market, the way it's been for the last couple of years, it's like we've gotten to see some of these cycles happen in an Excel time frame. So it's also been very interesting from that lens, like, OK, what does a rotation look like? Well, typically that takes months or years. And in this market, it could sometimes days or weeks. So that's been sort of a, a fascinating microcosm. And, you know, from there, uh, just like learning about investing and, and uh, learning about trading and so forth. I've gotten to doing uh, more investing and more trading on nearly a full-time basis. And that's been really exciting over the last couple of years to be doing that and you know, to benefit from a, a rising market, but also benefit from all the information sharing that's on FinTwit and on great podcasts like this, where so many people, I have to say, are just so generous with their time and their knowledge. And uh, I greatly appreciate that too. So I think that's one of the real strengths of the community is there's so many people out there that are willing to uh, just share so much information and, and really even mentor people. And it goes back and forth, right? Like I try to do the same thing and pay it forward for what I've learned when people are interested in that. I try to share that with them and, you know, hopefully uh, that helps them too. That's a, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, I, I love the, the term, a rising tide lifts all ships. And I, I think that's 
totally accurate when it comes to um, people in when they're investing. When you are when you're sharing your knowledge, uh, other people are gaining from it, and and you're getting something out of it too because people really appreciate that. Maybe some people are listening in and they're thinking like, well, okay, so you you started that, but how exactly did you start investing? Where what was your first job? Uh, how did you save that money to begin investing? I'm of a technical background, so I've been working in technology for pretty much uh, my entire career, but I have a lot of intersectionality with finance, and I've been consulting with uh, financial firms with regards to investments in tech companies and broader trends uh, for several years now, too, so that's been a little bit of a pivot. So, you know, I've been working uh, in technology, mostly in things like cybersecurity and cloud and uh, areas that are peripheral to machine learning and, uh, and IT and that's kind of where I cut my teeth. Um, and so that's where a lot of my investment interest has been. Now, I am multi-sector. I am, you know, multifaceted in my investment. So while I have a strong focus on technology, I do believe in some degree of diversification, uh, especially with regards to sectors that tend to be uh, in favor in terms of momentum. But basically, I got started. I was working at a company, an internet provider that got bought out. And it was bought out by a public company. And that got me really fascinated with just, just the whole dichotomy because, you know, back then I was, I was younger. I didn't really understand how all this stuff worked. I didn't understand how a public company was buying a private company, how that would affect their stock, how they're issuing shares of stock to buy this private company. It just all was very interesting. So I started to pour into the details of that. And I have to say, it, it really kind of drew me further into the world of investing. Of course, I talked to my dad about it too, because he was, um, you know, at the time sort of my mentor and I was, you know, very curious about the materials that he had and, and, you know, the stuff from IBD especially was always interesting. It had a lot of great material about how to read charts, how to read uh, balance sheets, how to look at earnings reports and things like that to get a better idea of where a company might be going. So that's how I started, um, you know, really just looking at a merger uh, and, you know, where a company was getting bought out that I worked at, how that changed, how it was financed uh, with shares of a publicly traded company. And then from there, I just really wanted to be more involved with this market. The idea that myself as an individual, and again, I'm a young person and you know, young people have wild imaginations, but this idea that you could own a piece of a growing business and use that as a way to uh, enhance your wealth, to grow your cash, and maybe even create an income was just very fascinating to me. So I've been investing you know, for a while. Uh, I started off seriously investing probably around 2004, 2005. So I got to, you know, really, I got to ride through the great financial crisis and all the, you know, craziness that came with that. And if anything, what I learned about that country, and some folks, if you're listening, you haven't been through like a real bear market. I think it's important to note, like a real bear market can take years to play out. What happened with COVID was uh, a, like a very brief pre, it was more of like a very short term, sharp correction than a bear market. Um, yeah. So I got started in investing just really uh, going through the process of a merger and learning about how all that worked. And then also with that uh, background knowledge of, uh, you know, doing that one trade in Yahoo and Amazon and just being fascinated by the potential. Like you said, you know, your first trade is always your greatest. It seemed effortless. Everything seemed easier than it probably should have been. And indeed it was that that is the case. You know, you, if everyone could make 100 percent in a day, no one would work a job in their life. <laughs> and so you're going to have ups and downs. But um, I think that's also part of what makes this whole thing so interesting is the challenge. You know, it's always uh, something where you're challenged to do better. How exactly would you label your your strategy and um, how would you label yourself uh, as a, a day trader, swing trader, investor? And since, you know, your first few investments, how has that evolved over the years or do you do you pivot uh, week to week based on 
uh, based on market trends and, and what you see moving forward? Sure. So I trade, I invest, uh, in, and I kind of differentiate between the portfolios based on timeframes. Um, you know, in my trading portfolio, timeframes can span from minutes to months. And then in my long-term investing portfolio with, you know, most of the time I would be holding things for years. Although in the last two years, we've seen moves that typically happen in years play out in weeks or months. So timeframes have been a little bit more fluid lately for holding periods, even in the investment portfolios that, you know, taxable and retirement accounts. So, you know, I got started um, really interested in both investing and trading, but doing more trading initially, just to, you know, I, I like the idea that I could sit down, watch the market and, and kind of learn about what was going on, watch the charts, the news, and, and maybe make some money. And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But it was really interesting to learn about that. But then I also started to learn, you know, the concepts like time in the market beats timing the market. And most of the time, that's really true. You know, with longer term investments, you can really compound those gains. You also have more preferential capital gains treatment. You know, not all of us live in countries where there's no capital gains. So we have to worry about that here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I really look at time frame. Uh, depending on a couple things, right? Like, so when I'm looking at an opportunity, most of the time it's going to start off with some sort of catalyst. Is it going to be a technical catalyst, fundamental catalyst, macro catalyst, order flow catalyst? It'll be one of those, right? And then I like to look for confirmation across multiple indicators, right? So if I see something that has an order flow catalyst, I want to confirm it on a technical basis. And I'd love to see some confirmation on a fundamental basis. And even better if there's some macro, like the more convergent uh, indicators, the more confident I am. And also the, the easier it is to get out because you know you're wrong pretty quickly if it doesn't go your way. And, and that's really for trading. So I might get into a trade and it might be something, oh, wow, look, a million shares just traded in three minutes on this thing. A lot of favorable options volume, a lot of calls being bought at a strike that's above the price of the commons. And so maybe I'll get into that trade with a, you know, a tight stop below, maybe just, just under VWAP. Uh, and I'm trying to enter you know, around that VWAP price when one of these things is taking off uh, intraday. And then I'm looking to get out just under that strike price where they're hammering calls. Uh, that, that would be a really short-term trade. Sometimes those play out in minutes or hours. Longer-term trades, you know, uh, something I might see on a chart or I might see something uh, that's based on order flow that gives me conviction to hold it for a period of days or weeks, sometimes even months. And those swing trades are, um, are higher conviction, right? That's something that you're comfortable going to sleep with in your portfolio. You're comfortable with how it might be treated in the cat subsequently from there. So with those kinds of trades, it's usually going to be a little bit bigger size, but it's also going to be something that's uh, a much higher conviction kind of swing. And, you know, sometimes you might see something where, like for me, as uh, having a background in technology, I might see something where it just seems wildly underpriced. It's coming into an area of key support. Maybe there's some bullish flow going through that, that gives me some more confidence. And those are the kind of things that I might swing for a long time. You know, with every trade also, and with anyone who is trading, important to define your risk before you, you worry about your reward. And it's really important to stick to your plan. And it's, it's also key to understand position sizing with regards to the volatility of what you're trading, right? So, you know, sometimes people will even put trades on a timer. Like they'll say, hey, this is going to play out in this time frame. And if it doesn't, my, my thesis is not uh, holding up and I have to get out because I don't have conviction. So those are some of the things that I kind of go alongside with my trading, with my investing. Um, I would call well, dependent on the sector I'm investing in because different sectors, it seems like you get better alpha or even beta harvesting depending on you know, kind of what's trading in there. Like energy, you can't really use growth valuation metrics in a lot of energy companies and hope to make money. A lot of them trade more like value companies. But on the other side, you know, if you're SaaS 
uh, or cybersecurity or AI, a lot of that stuff is going to trade much more, you know, anywhere between GARP, if it's like an unknown small cap, like kind of hyper growth valuations. So I have a couple of different disciplines and I've been fortunate enough to have mentors that were uh, of value and GARP and kind of hyper growth disciplines that have given me a lot of guidance along the way. I'm also fortunate enough to, you know, really have uh, a luxury of time to just be able to sit back and read a lot about these different successful investors and be interested in that content and, and really try to use it to shape my own investing style. So, you know, I kind of go with what I think works for that particular instrument or sector. So, you know, I don't necessarily have one style. I kind of, I kind of look at what it is that I'm doing and apply the framework that I think works best for that. So let's go back to some of the things you just talked about and begin with the investor versus trader. You talked about time in the market beats timing the market. When you say things like that, would you kind of break down the percentage you would say that you're trading of your entire portfolio compared to how much you're investing? Sure. So I actually, I keep multiple portfolios. So I have long-term invest taxable account. I have retirement accounts that I manage for myself and, and family. And then I have a trading portfolio. Um, my investing portfolio is bigger than my trading portfolio, but I also tend to take gains out of the trading portfolio and park them in the investing portfolio, right? So, you know, uh, uh, if I get to a certain point, I might say, okay, that's pretty good. I'm going to take that gain and I'm going to transfer it over to the investing portfolio, or I'm going to roll it into the retirement portfolio or something along those lines. I try to keep the, the trading account, you know, uh, uh, like 20% of the investing account, but it can get quite a bit bigger. And sometimes it can get a little smaller. There's, you know, some obviously going to be some volatility uh, uh, in, in that kind of thing. Uh, but timing the market, the reason I say timing the market is difficult also just just like outside of just the quote, just to drill down to that. Trading is harder than investing in a lot of senses because it requires a lot more time. Like to really trade, you have to dedicate hours and hours every day, unless you're doing these longer term, low risk, small position swing trades. And so, you know, 90% of traders that start eventually give up. And so with investing, and I'm not trying to trivialize investing because successful investing requires a lot of effort to be really good at it. And it does require a lot of time and discipline and so forth. So don't get me wrong. Uh, it, it just like, you know, you don't necessarily have to sit there and watch every tick if you're investing. It can be a little bit lower. So I think that's one reason that that quote really is valid and that longer term investing can be a lower stress way to generate alpha over time versus trading where sometimes you're just harvesting beta, you know, over and over and just trying to park that cash uh, on the sidelines after you have. You make a really good point there. Let's also follow up on another point you mentioned to Danny. You talked about going process of a merger, being genuine, you know, genuinely curious, fascinated. What do you recommend for resources for individuals to get uh, acclimated to trading or to investing? And where do you go uh, to learn this information? Because I think that's one of the biggest impediments. Obviously, with technology the way it is now, there's sources everywhere and you can find information all over the place. But what did you sort of do and, and how do you recommend anybody that maybe is a little bit newer go about the process of sort of teaching themselves if they're super fascinated? Yeah, and I, I think that's really important. I mean, you know, ultimately, when you're talking about either one of these things, you have the ability to get some guidance from people that have done this for a while, because not only do they you know, impart wisdom, but sometimes, you know, we can learn from the mistakes of others, which can be sort of the, the best thing to do, right? You know, obviously, sometimes we have to make our own mistakes to learn, especially if we're a little hard-headed, and I can speak from experience on that one. But there's a great deal of really, really well-written books uh, that, are, that are focused on trading and investing. 
Um, one that I think you know everyone should read is uh, what Peter Lynch wrote, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. I think that's a great book for everyone to read as their first investing book because Peter Lynch is is a luminary. He's an absolutist when it become when it comes to investing, and the principles that he elucidated in that book, even though it's dated, are still absolutely one hundred percent even even more. If you're a technologist, you know you have that uh, familiarity perhaps with what you're investing in more. Just as one example, um, just like if you're in the energy industry, you're going to know oil companies or whatever it is your your uh, specialty is better than the average person. So you might be able to apply that Peter Lynch ethos of invest in what you know. Jeremy Siegel wrote a book called Stocks for the Long Run. I think that's a pretty good uh, uh, book just to learn more about investing and having the discipline to hold. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of investors have problems with is just the idea that there's going to be volatility. And with that volatility is going to come emotion. And with that emotion, there's going to come impulse. And with that impulse, we might make bad decisions going both ways. Right? We might buy things when they've already had this manic run and we're just expecting them to keep running. And we might sell things because they've had a dip and, and, and we're no longer, you know, now we're scared about losing our profit or, or taking a further loss. And then we might see those things go on to change what our expectations were with what actually manifests. Maybe that thing we sold on the dip goes on to 10x and, and maybe the thing that we bought on that manic run goes on to get cut in half. And, and so I think that's the other thing that, you know, good books on investing and trading are going to talk about is trying to take emotion out and being objective. Uh, for trading, it's a little bit different. I think there's there's a lot of books to dive into. Uh, what I think would be good for this is after the um, spaces wraps up, I can give you all a list that you can reference uh, in the podcast and we can have in maybe one of the spaces tweets or something that I tweet out afterwards, just because there's so much ground to cover and there's so many sort of dimensions to trading. I think that's a great point. And honestly, for me, I, I only use a handful of resources. You know, there's Motley Fool and there's Seeking Alpha and stuff. And they're they're meant to put out, you know, daily articles about uh, this one stock or, or some crypto that's going to go, you know, 100x by, uh, in the year 2023. But, you know, so it's very, very easy for uh, a new trader or investor to get extremely overwhelmed. So I think it's very important. This is me personally, the way I do it is I only have a, a, a select few of resources that I use or and or mentors that I use. Uh, and that keeps me in kind of the right mindset. And so what I wanted to ask you is, what's the mindset of a trader versus an investor? And what kind of psychological aspect and benefits do you need to have in order to uh, differentiate the two? And also, you know, so you can be basically psychologically fit uh, and ready to be to be a successful trader and investor. Sure, I, I think that's a great question, um, and I also want to touch just a little bit on some of the other resources that I look at. But I want to answer this first because um, really the mindset I think ideally, and this is you know we're just going to kind of build up from a core here. But the mindset first, we really need to be in a good place emotionally, especially to trade. You know, investing you can kind of have rough days and just not touch your portfolio. It doesn't matter. But if you're trading, you really don't want to be down. You don't want to be angry. You don't want to be in a, in a bad place. You really want to be kind of neutral, not euphoric, not jubilant, you know, and it's kind of it can be tough to do that, especially when you see the, the value of your portfolio potentially fluctuating, given what trades you're in or if you're an investor, what investments you're in. But I think it's really important to remain emotionally disciplined. Because if you're emotionally disciplined, if you're not reacting too much to price and to the value of your portfolio, then you're not likely to make impulsive and unfortunate decisions. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I, you know, it seems like common sense, but get enough sleep. 
if you're trading especially because it's you're you're sitting there you're watching charts you're watching uh patterns play out your your mind has to be on the ball you have to be able to react very quickly you know your reflexes have to be top-notch sometimes the orders off when it's advantageous to get in or out of a position i mean i've seen something that can move multiple percent in a matter of seconds and if it moves against you it might have just taken your profit you might be in a loss you know you have to really kind of be in a good state of mind well rested uh and you know, for I think for trading and investing, there's a lot of parallels. It's just a little bit more important the day-to-day -day mindset for trading if you're trading every day. And not everyone does necessarily need to if you're in longer-term uh, kind of swings and you're managing your risk well. And, you know, for both trading and investing, I think it's important to also just replenish, right? So I think a lot of us get very kind of obsessed with the market and we pour into it and we pour into it. I know I've done this, but it's important to detach detach from the market news, detach from folio screen, detach from FinTwit, everything that faces, and just have some quality time, whether it's with your friends or your family or watching a movie or going for a walk, you gotta pull away and you gotta be able to kinda, you know, process stuff in the background, right? And, and just kind of level out and de-stress so you don't burn out. So I think that's really important too. You know, if we have a real volatile day like today, the worst thing that you can do is just beat yourself up. So the other thing, it's really important not to, to, to kind of like, you know, question yourself too much. Now, question bad decisions, sure. But like say, oh, I'm not cut out for this. I don't know what I'm doing. I suck, blah, blah, blah. That's really going to bring down your mind state. And you're going to actually start to believe some of those things that you tell yourself. So I think it's also important to like, you know, just take it easy. Like, don't get too bent out of shape. Maybe you lost a bunch of money. Okay, what is there to learn from that? Unpack it objectively when you're emotionally able to do it and not before. And maybe take a couple days off and say, oh, this happened and this happened. I could have done this better. Now, if I'm trading or investing, another thing I recommend, and it's similar to mind state, and, and this is also for building a healthier mind state over time, keep a journal. So why did you get into that position? What was your thesis? What's your defined risk? What's your reward for both a trade or an investment? We can apply this, uh, this sort of technique. And then also, you know, how did you feel when you did it? Like, did you do it because you researched it and you had all these indicators? Did you do it because you felt like it? Because one of the worst things that you can do as a trader and to some extent as an investor is just buy something because you felt like it. And people do this. This is something that can eat up our alpha, our ability to have a good compound annual growth rate over time. You know, you could say, oh, I'm sitting in front of the screen, I'm watching prices, nothing's really calling out on me, but I just feel like it. And that can be the worst thing you can do because you're getting in on an impulse. You're not getting in rational plan. You're not getting in because you've defined your risk and you understand where this thing might go. You're getting in because you feel like it. And that's something I highly, highly recommend against. In fact, if you feel like doing that, get up, go take a walk, do something else, whether it's an investment or a trade. And also the other thing is, if you have this like 100% certainty that whatever it is you're about to buy is about to go to the moon, take a step back. Because sometimes when it feels the most certain, that's when you really need to be careful. You know, you might think, oh, well, you know, this thing just went up 10%. It's got this great news story, you know, and, and everything looks great. All the people are bullish on it that I'm talking to. Well, maybe that means everyone's in right now. Maybe that means you've kind of got peak sentiment and you need to take a step back and wait for that thing to base. So, you know, when you really, really feel like getting in, that's another time when just like with a trade or an investment, you want to take a step back and, and, and maybe kind of consider why. And is there that urgency?
And if you know you really feel like there is, and this is an opportunity that's going to vanish, scale in slowly. If you really, if you've done your homework, you define your risk and reward. You know the fundamental case. The technicals look favorable. You don't have to get in it all at once. And you can slim, and then you can also scale out. So having that mindset of the the there's not necessarily urgency. So I recommend being really disciplined and having you know a kind of a plan of what you're doing and why before you do it, so that when you're in it. You're not kind of like going by your gut. You're not just flying by the seat of your pants and trying to make these decisions on the fly because it's a much more difficult situation to do. In terms of resources, you know, I talked a little bit about books. Other resources, I like to look at the news wires like Reuters um, and some of the other feeds, Dow Jones, things like that for symbols that I'm tracking on my watch list and in my portfolio just to see kind of what's manifesting out there that can change sentiment or might be a material change to the company. I like to look at those same news flows for the broader market. I look at order flow, like options, what are the unusual trades that are going on there, as well as in volumes in the market, especially for identifying trades. I like to look at technical analysis and, you know, I use things like uh, TrendSpider and stock charts and, you know, uh, uh, Sierra charts. One of my buddies who's in here, Traders Community, he turned me on to that one. And, uh, you know, I, I like to look at uh, technical analysis in a couple of ways, like Ichimoku Cloud. Uh, I think is a really good technical analysis strategy um, that uh, gives you a kind of a differentiated view. And I add to that some moving averages and some entum indicators just to get me those convergent technical signals. So, you know, I like to look at a lot of different things. Um, you know, when anytime when a company is announcing earnings, I like to pour through all the earnings, the conference call. Uh, I like to listen to if I can, or at least read the transcript, sometimes both. And, and, and really kind of be mindful of all parts of anything that's either in my portfolio long-term, in my trading portfolio, in any portfolios I might manage, or um, you know things that are on my watch list. So th those are the kinds of things that I like to pay attention to. And then I'm also really interested in the broader economic development. So I like to pay attention to macro. So I look at sites like Forex Factory. Um, I look at trading economics. Uh, pretty regularly because they both have a lot of great information about macroeconomics and what's going on in various countries. And that can help in a stock trade, bond trade, commodity trade, Forex, whatever. There's a lot of moving parts in the macro data that can be helpful for that too. So, you know, I, I kind of have a blend of things that I look at. Uh, it sounds like it's a lot, but I've got it kind of down to a science where I'm just looking at what I need to. So it doesn't take very long for me to go from A to B to C and kind of get a feel for where we are. Wow, that's a lot of uh, great information you threw in there, and, and uh, I'm still digesting it. But a couple of things I, I noted in there was that the remaining mentally neutral is fantastic. Having a journal is fantastic, part of your strategy and plan. Me personally, before I even uh, an, an investment in a given asset, I write it down when I'd like to get in, a, a rough number of when I would like to get in, how long I'd like to keep it, and when I would like to get out or maybe trim that position. But remaining uh, mentally neutral and leaving emotions out of it is easier said than done. How do you personally view your money before you start trading it? How does that help you make a trade, make a, a solid, logical trade or investment? So I've heard a couple metaphors that I like to kind of apply. Uh, one of them is your capital is kind of like an army you're deploying into battle. So make sure it's a battle that you can win, especially when you're talking about a trade. Right. You know, every dollar that falls is a soldier that's falling. So try to minimize your loss. So I kind of like to look at it that way, but not in the sense that I'm the general weeping over his fallen men, but more that I'm the tactician who's saying, OK, this isn't working out. Now it's time to try something different. And I think you can take that on a, on a um, slightly larger time scale with investing as well. You know, you want to manage risk 
in the sense that, look, if something goes against you, a lot of the time, the thing that hurts us the most is not the money going down. It's the ego, right? We get bruised. Oh, I'm wrong. Now I have to admit I'm wrong. I have to admit defeat. That is what hurts a lot of people. And I think that's one of the biggest things we have to take out of our own reactions, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're wrong or right. As you wisely said, um, you know, it, it could be a totally different time frame. So maybe you were right, but you just weren't right when you got in or when you got out or, you know, or, or, or on the time frame you needed to participate. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, the market is going to tell you where things are going to be priced. And there is some degree of inefficiency. That is to say, things can be mispriced for minutes, hours, days, weeks, sometimes even months, depending on the asset, depending on how overlooked it or misunderstood it might be. But ultimately, you know, if something is wrong, the market is going to tell you it's wrong through price. That's really the best way the market's going to communicate its signal to us. And we have tools like technical analysis to tell us whether the market is communicating that signal and price in a way where we need to change our investment decision or our trading decision because, okay, now the market's really telling us we're wrong in no uncertain terms, right? So I think it's really important to say, look, when we're deploying our capital, we need to be sensitive to the notion that we're just going out there hoping that we're smarter than the rest of the market and that we're buying whatever it is we're buying at a price that someone else is going to be willing to pay more for it, right? Assuming you're long and, and, and you know, you're going for that kind of uh, execution, then that's really what's going to happen. You know, if you're trying to generate alpha, that's the idea, right? Whatever it is I'm buying is going to appreciate in value. It's a commodity. It's just going to get more expensive. Maybe supply and demand changes. Uh, if it's a stock, then maybe the business is going to get better or the sentiment's just going to be multiple expansion from price appreciation. And I think that the other side of it is, and this is just as important, when something you own goes up, like, oh, I don't know, 10, 50, 100, 300%, right? It can be very, very sort of euphoric feeling that we can embrace the sort of idea that, oh, we were so right. Oh, boy, wow, we're really killing it. And you got to be careful because that's just as dangerous as the ego being bruised, refusing to let go of a loss, right? Refusing to realize a loss. Oh, it's going to go back up. Oh, I was right. You know, the other side of it is, oh, it's just going to go up to infinity. Right. Like, uh, you know, you saw countless ex examples of this leading up to this earnings season where things just, you know, went to valuations where they were absolutely priced to perfection. And you look around on FinTwit and StockTwits and other kind of sentiment gauges of, of retail investors and people are like, oh, it's going to go to, you know, it's, it's at 200 bucks. Oh, it's going to a thousand, you know, or it's, oh, it's going to be a trillion dollar company in a week or a month or whatever. And you saw like the, the sentiment really get overheated there. Oh, multiple other kinds of sentiment gauges. And that kind of gave you an idea. People are getting emotional. There's a lot of greed in the market. And that's dangerous too. That's just as dangerous as fear, right? Fear will compel us to potentially hold on to losers. And greed may compel us to not necessarily realize that, you know, this might be something that's ephemeral, uh, especially when you're in a trade, you know, and speaking of time uh, tables, sometimes you'll get in a trade like a, a DWAC, right? Like that SPAC that had a fantastic short squeeze, you know, it went from something like, you know, 20 bucks to 200 bucks or something like that. Uh, it basically pulled like a, a move similar to GameStop, but in a matter of days. And, 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 you know, so people can get really, really emboldened by that. I think every trade they're going to do is going to be like that trade. Oh, I'm going to go into this. I've got the, mat, the Midas touch, you know, and, and this next thing is going to go up 100% just because, you know, I think it will. You know, the market doesn't care if you're right or wrong. It's just going to tell you over time whether you're right or wrong. 
The market also doesn't really care about what we want or need from it. And I think that's an important realization when we're deploying capital that, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do. And it might be because of a cycle. It might be because of a, uh, a, an event catalyst. It might be because of an individual business issue that happens. It changes, you know, what our portfolio's destiny seems like from the previous day. But these are all things we need to process. So we need to react rationally. We need to digest these events and figure out why they're happening so we can make good decisions for preserving and growing our capital. Totally making good decisions with capital is the key for everybody listening. So there's been a lot. And there's a lot to digest for, for everybody here. Let's take a community question now. We're going to bring up Theta Rider right now and let Theta Rider ask a question. And then if you do have more questions, you can save them towards the end. We'll chime in if you have specific stocks you'd like to ask about and get Mayhem's opinion. Uh, let's go to Theta right now. You're The floor is yours, sir. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you having me up. Um, Mayhem, a couple questions. Curious to hear your thoughts about uh, position sizing and risk management. And if you already covered that, no need to repeat. I just kind of joined the space a little late. Sure. Yeah, I, I think position sizing and risk management, I touched on a little bit, but I'm happy to talk about it because it's really a key to success of both investing and trading. One thing is, and I, this is something, uh, it's a mistake we can all make, is like not knowing the implied volatility and risk of an instrument. Like, what are we buying? How much is it going to move? You know, if it has options, you can get a little bit of a sense of that from the, the uh, implied volatility and the options. If it doesn't, like, you, you know, you can look at charts, you can get a better sense of that. You can look things in your bands as to where the price volatility is in the short term. You look at broader volatility of the market, get a sense as to how big you should be sizing your portfolio in general, especially if you're using anything like margin. Yeah, in essence, for individual positions, you know, my my thought is, you know, you really never want to get so big on it in individual that it can wipe out more of your capital than you're comfortable with. It sounds straightforward. But how often do we look at allocating capital and we're just so excited that we're not necessarily looking at that calculus, but it's so much more important. So manage your risk before your reward. How much are you willing to lose on any individual trade or investment? You need to size your position based on that and then assessing risk. You can look at charts, you can look at options, you can look at you know other kinds of things. You could talk to people who may have been in that position before, or familiar with how it trades. But I would say you know to each their own. Some people are much more risk tolerant. Other people are much more risk adverse. So you know if you don't know what works for you, start small. Maybe even smaller than you think is good. And then also for position sizing, I think it really is good to just go back to scaling and say most of the time, especially with investments. It's smarter to scale than just go all in at once. And it can be difficult, you know, if, if you're buying something and, you know, it runs really hard and you're like, oh, why didn't I go full position? And, you know, the problem with that is that then maybe next time you do and it was the wrong thing to go full position, right? So I think it's really important when we're doing our position sizing to come up with a sort of tactical strategy. And it doesn't have to be written in stone. But for most of the stuff we're doing as a trader or an investor, have that strategy and apply that framework to what you're doing. So let's talk about the next thing, which I wanted to personally know, uh, Mayhem, which is you earlier talked about fragility and this market looking a little bit fragile. You've talked about volatility. Why is it looking so fragile in your opinion? And where do we go from here? What's your take on this? Sure. So uh, just to be clear, like I don't think it's necessarily like, oh, we're preparing for any kind of you know, significant move lower necessarily, but, you know, just the kind of price action that we saw uh, today and to some extent yesterday, um, we've been in this well-defined upward trend channel since March on both the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. And typically when we get to the top range of that trend channel, 
Uh, price respects that. It might hug it a little bit, but it typically goes lower and retest the moving average or even the lower end of the trend channel. So that's one reason. And, and you know, so far that thesis has been working out. We touched the top of the trend channel. We scraped along a little bit and now we've been retreating lower uh, from there. We, we've had, you know, a lot of bullish uh, beginning of month flows at the beginning of November that are starting to roll off. You also have, to some extent, those, those positive passive flows. You know, when people are uh, hedging their exposure to the market, um, what happens when they're buying puts is that the market makers have to go short whatever it is. So if it's the index, they're shorting the index. And as time rolls off, uh, they have to go buy back some of those shorts as that delta drops, right? So theta decay uh, has an effect. And that brings those passive flows typically late in the day in the market. So, you know, what I've been seeing is you've got Evergrande and there's some stuff that's boiling over there. And, it's, you know, they, they seem to sort of have skated a default, but it's still a systemic risk that we have to be very mindful of. We see a market where the 30-year auction was very poorly subscribed today. Uh, this was one of the worst 30-year auctions in a long time. And the 30-year is pretty key for other long-duration assets like growth styles, crypto, uh, debt. You know, a lot of stuff keys off it. And, and big moves in rates, the velocity of rates also has an effect on the broader market. Uh, and so when that auction happened today and the results came out just after one and they were so subpar, you saw the market really start to roll over and some of the more rate-sensitive growthy type of stuff roll over even harder than the broader market. Um, and then another thing is you just see volatility kind of scraping along the lows of the cycle and catching a bid. And so you do see, I think, some signs that there might be some choppiness, right? You know, and, and as we approach um, options expiration and as we approach expiration or the, uh, the uh, expiration of volatility products, uh, typically that's a time of the month where the market gets a little bit more volatile um, because you don't have those passive flows supporting the market and you also have people rolling their volatility product exposure. And, you know, it, it typically gets that way until the beginning of the next month or at least the end of the month. So we're, we've just got a lot of factors kind of moving in that, that um, support the idea that maybe things will be a little bit choppier. And then it, with the backdrop of all that, I'd be remiss to ignore the reactions we've seen to earnings and how punished stocks have been, even to earnings that are, you know, objectively pretty good and guidance is objectively pretty good. Sometimes stocks are just, seems like they, you know, they're just going to get beat down. The market seems to think that they, they're overvalued or for whatever reason, they're getting sold off pretty aggressively in the double digits. And I think that's more evidence that there's, you know, a little bit of a lack of conviction uh, in, in holding some of these things. Let's talk about some specific names now. And let's start with the newest name, that joined public markets, and that's Rivian. Have any thoughts on it? Were you part of a trade in the name? And what do you look for when it comes to IPOs and new names? Are you into getting in on the first day, or how do you feel sort of about that idea or concept with trading? Uh, so I, I think that's a great question, especially since there's so much supply of IPOs coming online in the last uh, you know two years here. So it's really you know, change the amount of shares that are out there. There's much more shares trading on the market, much more companies trading on the market. That's something that's changed over the last couple of years. It's really interesting to see that. So with Rivian, um, I didn't play it personally. I was in some other trades and um, uh, the market, you know, the, the, the market wasn't trading in a way where I was too bullish on going long and some of these things. Uh, but, you know, I had some friends that traded it. Some of them are in this room right now that did pretty good. In my sense, you know, if I was trading something like that, if I'm going into a new IPO, right, it really depends on, A, I want to see a bullish tape. So I want to see the market well bid. I want to see people's risk appetite strong. So I want to see broad breadth on the tape. 
that really emboldens my conviction that, you know, uh, a new issue is going to be well subscribed. A lot of people are going to be buying that new issue after it goes IPO. So those are, I, I like to see it well subscribed. I like to see it open above the, the trading range and be well bid. And, and that gives me a little more conviction that perhaps it's got some juice. I like to see strong volume flows. I like to see people smacking the ask and just driving it higher and then a little consolidation. And then maybe I'll open a position and start scaling into something. But also, you know, there's some of these things outside of a trade and for an investment that are actual opportunities too. Like you might find that a new IPO comes out and it's from a company you've been following for a long time and you're familiar with it. And, you know, you really, you know, have been wanting to get long it for a while. Uh, and, and now it's going out there and, and maybe you're lucky enough that it's coming out with a valuation that's not extraordinarily expensive. So there's not a lot of downside risk if you buy it and they don't have the best earnings report, you know. That that's the kind of company that uh, I get interested in, and I'm you know like I said earlier, like I'm not going whole hog if it's not a trade. I'm not going whole hog on IPO. I'm going to scale because you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we're none of us are necessarily reliably smarter than the market. We might be smarter than the market one day. The market's going to be smarter than us a lot of other days. So we have to be humble, and that being humble means scaling in and out. But you know, for IPOs, if it's fundamentally attractive and it, it, it really doesn't price in a way where it's uh, you know, putting a lot of risk into into where I'm going to be buying it at and the pricing. Yeah, I'll I'll look at scaling a position, especially if it's something that I understand and I have conviction in, and I've I've managed my risk well enough that I'm not going to be worried about going to bed at night holding that stock. That's a great point, and it actually leads me to my next question here. So, spacs spacs aren't aren't new, but they've become kind of mainstream this year. Uh, you know, obviously they hit like a peak with uh, I think it was Lucid earlier this year that that had uh, that went public via spac. Uh, it's gone. They've gone way down since the summer was awful for them, or or beginning of fall. Now they're starting to see a rise again. Uh, companies like Allbirds, I think it's Allbirds. It's a uh, that just went public via SPAC just the other day. So now they're they're starting to come back, and the roller coaster it seems like it's going back up. What's what's your personal take on SPACs, and um, is it something that you are interested in trading or investing in? Sure, that's a, is a great. And there's a couple things I want to cover to address it, just to kind of give a background of my view on this type of stuff. So, you know, earlier this year, a bit late last year, we had this sort of spectacular rally, and it could be anything. It was a spac. People threw money at it, and we're kind of, sort of getting back into that, but it's a little different this time. This time, you know, you have two categories of spacs that do well. You have the ones that get hyped up, and they have low floats, and sometimes they're short. So people going into the, you know, into the DSPAC or whatever kind of deal announcement, it's just got all this kind of pent up potential and maybe it even trades options. And, you know, for something like IronNet, for example, this is a one where before the, the DSPAC happened, there was enough options, there was enough calls bought that the open interest was larger than what the float was going to be. And so you saw this sort of writing on the wall that something big could happen here. It was also pretty shorted. People didn't really believe in the idea of this uh, cybersecurity company. And so this is something where I saw it kind of come on this more of a trade uh, uh, thing, but you know, a lot of SPACs are trades these days. The, the, the SPAC price accumulation sometimes happens in an hour or a day, but instead of like a, a week, a month or a year. So, you know, I saw it come on at about uh, $14 a share and they just kept gamma squeezing it higher to about 40 the same day. Now I didn't ride the whole thing, but I got a trade out of it. And what showed me that was going to happen was that sort of fundamental uh, idea of, wow, there's a lot of calls bought here and the hedging is going to force a lot of that float to be tied up. And there's a lot of shorts tied up in this thing. And uh, there's a lot of people buying shares, too. So you had these convergence of factors. So for a trade, yeah, I think SPACs are great for a trade if you see those types of things line up. Um, and that's one category. The other category of SPACs are the sort of investable ones. And every once in a while you find one and, you know, the management's great. The fundamentals are attractive. 
And, you know, obviously there's risk going into any DSPAC. I think 80% plus of DSPACs lose value some pre precipitously. So, you know, so, like any talking about here, scaling is key. You're not smarter than the market. I'm not smarter than the market. No one is. So you got to scale, which means you buy and then you wait maybe a month or whatever. And then you buy again and you build your position up over time. But for some of these SPACs, yeah, I think, you know, they, they have potential. They're attractive. Um, and, you know, they, like, for example, one I've been watching is GIG or BigBear.ai. And it's kind of like a mini type of Palantir company. They're all into uh, data analytics. They've got a good, healthy government contracting side. And they're growing into commercial. So for something like that, I'm beginning to scale into a position that I will build over time. And one of the reasons I like it also is fundamentally it's attractive. It's trading at EV rev about 5.4 with 40% growth. So I don't feel like I'm paying way too much for that. So, you know, it's, it's situational. But I do think uh, I will say it's attractive here because we have very easy financial conditions. Real rates are near the lowest they've been this cycle. So that's, you know, you take the yield curve and you subtract out uh, the inflation expectation. And you know, real rates are very accommodative of long duration assets. And a lot of these facts have a long runway before they start producing anything resembling bottom line, sometimes even top line, which means you need to have a long time horizon. But on the other side of that, remember, we are getting into the beginning of the Fed's tightening cycle. So these variables could change and that could change how attractive SPACs are even as early as next year. You know, it actually leads me to my next question is, um, you know, with with all the economic uh, things going on with the Fed printing money, everything else, so many companies are going uh, public via SPAC. Do you start to see like a little bit of a bubble start to blow up when it comes to uh, the SPAC market? I mean, you know, objectively speaking, I think we have bubbles all over the place. And a lot of them have been facilitated by an unprecedented amount of central bank liquidity entering the market in a very short period of time in response to that uh, COVID credit crisis kind of situation that played out last year. You know, I mean, typically when central banks respond to a crisis, they graduate. And then of late, we've seen this quantitative easing. Uh, as a response in the U.S. where, you know, okay, well, like the great financial crisis was a was the first example here. I think maybe they did something somewhat similar to it before the Great Depression, but that's neither here nor there. Basically, this was a huge velocity of central bank liquidity entering the market in a matter of days and weeks, unlike anything we've ever seen. And it's still sloshing around. You know, that's one reason we've seen such high reverse repo uh, numbers. It's one reason we've seen these episodic bubbles and all these different sectors and an accelerated credit cycle. You know, typically a credit cycle is going to last years before we start seeing a lot of these rotations to mid and late cycle. But in this one, it's you've had these sort of episodes of thematic within the greater cycle. And it, it's been a little dizzying because the market's often uh, kind of gotten ahead of itself and said, oh, we're going to reflation. Now we're going back to growth. Now we're going to five names that are going to lead the market for some indeterminate amount of time. And then we're going to find the next sector as the pendulum swings. So, you know, with this, with SPACs, yeah, I think we're in a bit of a uh, bubble in some, but you know, you look at others are trading at net asset value and they're de-risked. So it's situational. You got to kind of look at whatever it is that you're buying, you know, and, and what its potential is. And you also got to remember some of these SPACs, especially the ones that came out you know, uh, in 2020 and 2021, uh, early this year, had presentations to investors that were hyper unrealistic. They made numbers projections and there was nothing against the law about them doing this that were impossible if people bought them on that premise and many were burned. Uh, and, and so, you know, you got to be careful with this stuff because it does have different regulations. There's different levels of what the SEC and other uh, regulatory agencies are going to do with regards to misrepresentation by a publicly traded company versus uh, a SPAC 
and before it despacks, right? Those, those, there's, there's some bridging the gap that's happening, but it's not, it's not enough at the point where you can take those presentations at face value. Now, obviously, you can't take them at face value from a, you know, from a another just traditional IPO or DPO uh, type of company, but you at least have some confidence that there's more enforcement if there's outright fraud. And with some of these SPACs, there was some shady kind of stuff that happened, and a lot of people lost a lot of money early this year uh, when the sort of spectacular rally turned into a bit of a spectacular implosion in late February going on through May. Uh, and that's why I think it's also, you saw such a long period of time before there was a lot of new SPAC issuance and before sentiment started to get back where people were willing to put their toes back in the sector. So like with anything else, you know, be careful, know what you're buying and know why you're buying. I'm curious now to talk specifically about some of the, the names I know that you're very big on and people may be an example of how you would use some of the descriptions you've given, such as scaling. So let's talk about Palantir right now. I know Palantir, a big name for you, a company that recently has uh, had a dip. So using your idea of scaling, how would someone say that wants to get into Palantir based on where it's at right now, sort of scale into it? Or how do you play Palantir? So give us an example. So, you know, with anything after earnings, you know, if you if you're not familiar with the company and you're getting you're getting familiar with the company, I think the first thing to do is really read that last earnings report, read uh, a couple of the ones preceding that, get familiar with what the company is doing, how the company has been performing quarter over quarter, year over year, and get a sense as to what your investment thesis is and why you're buying the company, right? So if you're buying a company like that, the first thing you want to determine is what's your position size going to be long term? Right, like, is it going to be one percent of your portfolio? Three, five, ten percent? Probably wouldn't take any investment much higher than ten, unless it grows that way on its own. But that's my own sort of two cents on that. But you know, for something like this, I would say wait for the dust to settle, learn about the company, determine that you're comfortable with the amount of risk that you might be taking on, and then scale in uh, to that position after you determine the size, and maybe do buys of five to ten percent of what that total position size is going to be at a time, and then on the time scale that you feel comfortable with, with building that position. Like, you know, if you feel it's it's more imminent that there may be a recovery, you may want to have an accelerated time scale. If you're patient with building that position over your time, you know, just dollar cost average in. To most investors, it's important to just dollar cost average in because what you're doing is you're just getting exposure to whatever the market is at that period of time rather than trying to time the market. And I would say one thing this earnings season reminds me of is a little bit that we're at in May where we had a lot of companies very viciously punished. And it was around the time that we saw, you know, some of that sort of a rotational thematic preference change uh, occur. And it, it's something that's sort of happening underneath the surface here. Uh, the last couple of days, you've seen a lot of favor for low beta stocks and a lot of high beta stuff and growth stuff getting sold off. So, you know, part of the reason that some of this stuff is really dropping is just the way the market is acting and what it's favoring. And part of it is you've got some individual negative catalysts going on uh, inside the companies themselves. Interesting breakdown of Palantir. I know that's a big name uh, on the street for traders and for you know investors that read Investorly. With that, I want to move to the number one stock at Investorly, a name that we've been bullish on, me personally, for a long period of time, something that I find to be essential to the entire country right now, and that's cybersecurity, and that leads me to CrowdStrike. A big fan of CrowdStrike. How do you feel about Strike? In your opinion, Mayhem, I know that you said off uh, air to me that that was a name that you were big, uh, had big interest in. So talk, talk to us about CrowdStrike. First, I just want to say as a sector, cybersecurity is probably one of the most important and durable components of the technology industry right now. 
because no matter what you need it it doesn't matter whether you know you think you need it or not everyone's going to need it government companies private individuals we're all going to need to ratchet up our cybersecurity in, in a pretty significant way and then another side of that same equation is there is a deficiency of the work pool of talented people to do that work so you know you have a pressing need for automation so CrowdStrike, um, I like them because they're not just, you know, sort of an endpoint player. They're scaling into data protection and other areas of cybersecurity. Um, I think that they have a pretty differentiated role. They do have some comp some competitors with compelling offerings like Sentinel One, um, but I think that CrowdStrike differentiates itself because they're, you know, they're really targeting uh, a customer base that's a little bit different and. Um, and their software is among the best. And so is their, their capability of sort of getting to the bottom of the incidents, you know, their ability to get behind some of the stuff with the, with the tools that they have and with their expertise. So I like them as a cybersecurity play. I like the cybersecurity space as a whole. And I actually think there's a lot of names in the cybersecurity space that are uh, not as well known and not as well talked about that still have a lot of potential that that are sort of differentiated from CrowdStrike and Palantir and others that might be hot. There's just so much opportunity in the space and it's interested space because it's there's there's a lot of depth. It's very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts in cybersecurity, but that's kind of what makes it uh, an exciting space to invest in too. Totally. And actually we uh, at Investorly have been very bullish on Sentinel One, which was a recent IPO only a couple months back and has done well since IPO as another name in cybersecurity. You did say you are interested in some other names. If you don't mind, why don't you share some other names in the cybersecurity realm? And don't forget, guys, if you want to ask a question, now's your chance. Send in a request and we'll get your questions asked shortly here. Sure. So I like, uh, you know, names like uh, Tenable. Tenable, T-E-N-B, is a uh, cybersecurity player that really focuses on vulnerability management and compliance. Uh, so like if you're a company that needs to uh, adhere to certain uh, compliance measures, or you're concerned about your security, or you've been breached, their tools are one of a couple different players uh, in that uh, vulnerability assessment and management place that um, are often used, that are well-reviewed, that uh, really do a good job from, you know, some firsthand experience I can share. Uh, and one of their competitors is also, you know, sort of like we, we both like CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1. One of their competitors, Rapid7 RPD, is similar and, and they have a pretty vertically integrated cybersecurity uh, toolkit for both vulnerable, vulnerability assessment and management as well as penetration testing. And they go into a couple of other sort of related horizontals. So I like both of those names uh, in vulnerability management. Um, I find uh, Veronis interesting, VRNS, their real data protection and security uh, and they're differentiated uh, even though CrowdStrike's kind of getting into this area, it's a little different. They're more into data protection. Veronis is really more into managing who has access to data and how it's secured. Uh, so that's a name that I like that uh, I've been watching and, and sort of starting to scale a position into. They just had earnings that I thought were pretty impressive. Um, I had uh, uh, Mimecast for a bit, but they're talking about selling themselves and they had a good pop on that. So I exited it. But if they pulled back, and they don't end up doing so and actually really want to uh, continue to grow as a company. I like their offering and I think their valuation is reasonable. So Mimecast, M-I-M-E, is one that I had played before. A10, uh, they, you know, a couple of years ago, they had a new CEO join and they've been doing more and more on-prem and uh, now transitioning into cloud cybersecurity. So they're sort of a, you know, going from legacy hardware to cloud-based uh, offering. And they have other areas they plan to, but cybersecurity is a pretty big place for them. They recently had pretty blowout numbers too. So I've been, you know, looking at them. I've been uh, uh, in them for a while, but I'm looking at them as you grow my position in over time. 
there's also, you know, names that are largely known, but but maybe we don't all know why we're investing in them. Like Zscaler is one that if you don't use their product, you may not understand the value it adds, but it's actually pretty differentiated from every other name I've mentioned because it allows secure site to site and peer to peer connectivity and related offerings to that. And it's almost effortless to set up. So that's very valuable if you're deploying uh, these secure connections in a world where more and more people are working remotely, where you have to do that. So that's one of the reasons they have a pretty good catalyst for them. Um, so I think that's that's a pretty good start. There's definitely more ground to cover, but it's just such a big space, and there's so much uh, uh, opportunity in it. Yeah, that is uh, that was a that was a good set of the names right there, and a nice place to start. Do you want to take a community question that I got for your messages? And are you willing to talk about MQ? Sure. Yeah. Marquette, Marquette is a really interesting company. Uh, I do have a position in Marquetta and it's one that I think a lot of people kind of looked at the concentration of Square as a customer. I think uh, it was up to 70%. It's starting to dilute now. I think we'll see more. I have to pour into the earnings from today. I think we'll see uh, that represent hopefully less of their revenue. It certainly will moving forward with all the deals that they're making, including with companies like Affirm that are growing pretty quickly. But I like Marquetta because you know what they're really doing is they're bridging uh, a lot of fintech into sort of real world uh, transactional systems like credit cards. And they're also bridging uh, crypto similarly. And so that's there's a lot of intersectionality in terms of what they're doing and they can scale their platform. So they have this huge, you know, everyone likes to talk about a huge total addressable market and growth, but I really do feel like they have a pretty inordinate opportunity. But overall, uh, I think the company is, is a very interesting play on the periphery of fintech to financial systems that we use in the real world every day, like credit cards. I also just want to throw in from an investing standpoint and from a trading standpoint and just in general, one of the really good ideas and, and ways to think about companies sometimes can be, well, if company A is doing something fantastic, how does that play into other companies that may be derivatives and how? So sometimes if you're thinking about, well, this company is up 20% today on this news, there can be opportunity if you think about what other companies can be affected based on that news. And so sometimes don't just think about the main news that they're telling you maybe on CNBC or some major headline, but think about sort of the outliers. How is this affected sort of next level? And that's really where you can find opportunity. It just made me think about that when you talked about MQ and the ability where they started to be, you know, with the major player with Square. And so I love that. I do want to do a couple quick hitters, and I know Danny wants to, to finish this up here, if you don't mind, Mayhem. I want to ask you two questions. First, and hopefully they can be rather quick here. The first one, what has been your best trade ever? It's kind of hard because sometimes you have the difference between percentage and capital, right? So you have some trades where, oh, wow, you make like, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 percent on an options contract in a very short amount of time, but it's not a lot of capital. So I've had those kind of trades where you see these squeezes and you see an option contract go from like up 20,000 percent, up 40,000 percent, and you capture some chunk of that move. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done that in, in something like NVIDIA or IronNet or some of these others. Uh, and, and there's just so much of that going on, but I never go to a large position and stuff like that because it's just, quite frankly, it could go against you very easily too. And you could lose your entire premium paid. So that, that those are probably like the best trades in terms of percentage in terms of capital i got really lucky on a trade with a cannabis company uh called ogi and it, it's kind of funny because you know we're back into peak cannabis company seasonality this is the time of year they tend to do pretty well but ogi had been one that i've been watching and i started to buy and i took on a position with a cost basis of about a buck 30 and it ran all the way because you know 
we had the, the cannabis sector seasonality, but then we also had the sort of episodic gamma squeezing that was going on around that time. And I want to say it was early this year where it ran up to seven and a half dollars after hours. In fact, my friend traders community was in this one with me too. You know, we were both like, okay, well, it's gone from like a buck 30 to seven fifty in like a matter of weeks. And now it's an evaluation that doesn't make any sense at all anymore. So we're just going to sell it here. And that's one of those situations where, you know, you can get real giddy and euphoric and be like, oh, it's going to go to the moon. It's going to go to $20. But we just said, okay, it doesn't make sense anymore. And certainly, you know, you can get out of trades too early that way. And I've done that too. But that was one of my best trades on a capital basis because I had conviction about the name. I knew that it was worth a lot more than a buck 30. My exit target was about 350. And then that sort of gamma squeeze and short squeeze event happened. And uh, I just rode it up to 750, got out and never looked back. Fantastic. This is totally up for you to decide how you want to interpret it. You talked about having a lot of conviction. We like to invest for a long term. We are investorly. We're empowering a community to invest early. It's the decade 2020s. We're about to be on 2022. Will you get one stock for this decade? What stock is it and why? Well, I think everyone knows if they follow me that that answer would still be Palantir. <laughs> uh, it's one of my higher conviction names because even, you know, with some of the turbulence in price, I think that it has the, um, the potential to be a five or 10 bagger over that time frame as long as they can execute. And it's really about the commercial growth side, which I think this latest earnings represented. Yeah, they can do that. They had a 40% increase quarter over quarter. So sequential commercial client growth was strong. They had a hundred percent increase year over year of commercial revenue. And that last quarter was like 90%. So, you know, that's growing at a healthy clip. Uh, but the other thing I like about Palantir is they're a decade plus ahead of their time in technology. In fact, they just rolled out a new offering today called Hyper Auto. And I don't think anyone would have noticed it if they looked at the price, but uh, you know, you look at the news flow and Hyper Auto is a convergence of CRM and ERP and a couple of other factors. It's like a, an abstraction layer for providing value to executing on all that data. And it's typically siloed in different platforms that don't talk to each other. So Palantir is taking the uh, capabilities of Foundry and applying it to yet another large, very complicated set of intermingling data that is important to understand and act on quickly to generate alpha. And so I like the direction this company is going. I like that they're buying uh, criticism, you know, out there about they're buying SPACs and why are they doing this? And, you know, I think if you look at any successful company that has scaled and, and really outgrown whatever people tried to pigeonhole them into, they've invested outside of themselves. They've invested in startups. They've invested in other companies. They sometimes acquire companies. But in this case, they're helping to accelerate the growth of companies by not only investing in them, but giving them access to leverage technology that gives them a generational advantage over their peers. And, and I think one of those companies their their CEO even said something to the effect of, look, if you're not using this product, you're going to fall behind. Like, you know, when you're talking about what I think the value proposition here is, and I think this is what the market really misunderstands, we're in a digital transformation and it's really a core component of the fourth industrial. It's just in its early innings, probably the first or early part of the second inning here. And despite some of the noise and some of the distortions and valuations in this market that are happening both up and down, I think that this is a company that is looking into the future, has seen where we're going, which is a much more data intensive future than we are even now. And I think, you know, we create so much data on a daily basis that it used to be, it took, you know, uh, over a hundred years to create that level of data. And we're just rolling out ever increasing large amounts of data, but not with the capability to understand how to 
execute on that data, sometimes autonomously, sometimes with a human element, but nevertheless, it becomes much more complex when that data is all stored in different places and you can't see it all at once and you can't see how it uh, creates patterns and different bits of information that allow you to make a better decision based on what you're going to do. Whether it's say a power grid where you can tilt a wind turbine just a little bit of a different direction uh, to match that wind flow that you see on the weather patterns or whether it's um, you know a medical devices company that can better monitor the health of its patients and get ahead of potential diagnostics problems or whether it's a gene technology company where they're uh, you know figuring out new ways to sequence genes to help to cure different types of degenerative diseases. Um, there's a lot of opportunity with this kind of a platform. And I'm really excited about Foundry. I'm, I'm still excited about Gotham. I think the government platform, one of the things that a lot of people missed was that this is a lumpy billing cycle. And it, you know, if you're familiar with government contractors, it, it always is. But this was a lumpy billing cycle and it typically is seasonally for them. So it wasn't too surprising to see de uh, sequential deceleration of government growth. So for me, you know, the thesis hasn't changed. I'm still uh, very much of a, a 10 plus year view of this company. Um, my personal conviction on it is that as long as management can keep executing and growing commercial, that's the most important part of the flywheel that they're building for Palantir. And that's really where their core hyper growth, you know, moving forward for that 30% year over year growth that they projected to, to uh, 2025. I think that's where most of that's going to come from. So that, that would be my choice for the decade. That's a good choice. I think I'm gonna have to look at some uh, some leap options tomorrow morning when I when I uh, turn on my computer. I think you you may have actually just sold me uh, about Palantir. But uh, going into the future, you talked about the fourth industrial revolution. You talked about data capture. Um, part of that blockchain technology and uh, crypto. Now, as a trader and as somebody with your type of background. Do you believe in what the capabilities of blockchain can do? And do you also trade crypto? So, yeah, I think that um, blockchain, you know, as a technologist and as a trader and as, a, as an investor, you know, from all those viewpoints, it has a lot of value. I think that it's still something that's in the early stages of demonstrating all that. Uh, but, you know, as time goes, you could have a future where you're trading stocks and options and and other kinds of financial assets on a blockchain driven exchange where all that information is available in real time and replicated so that it can't be tampered with. And, and in many ways, it would be a lot better than the DTCC, uh, which is what is currently doing that function. And you have this sort of T plus two nonsense and the DTCC is run by a bunch of the biggest banks like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. And you know, you never, you never know. We've seen Wall Street do a lot of funny business. So I'll just, I'll leave that there. I think that's the reason that a lot of crypto started to exist was genuine, uh, significant dis dissatisfaction with the financial system status quo. I think there's, a, a, you know, in this space, I think there's there's some uh, crypto, uh, you know, tokens or, or currencies or whatever you want to call them. They kind of have different functions and so maybe different naming uh, is appropriate, but some have a lot of potential. I, I think Ethereum personally has a lot of potential. Something like Chainlink probably has a significant amount of potential. And so some of these things are differentiated. You've got over 12,000 different types of coins or tokens out there over $3 trillion uh, that's been put into that market over time. So, you know, it, it's definitely something that there's, uh, there's growing institutional involvement. It's, it's becoming something we can't ignore. So as a trader, yes, I have traded crypto, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, uh, some of the other altcoins, even trade a little Ethereum and, and stuff like that. I don't use really large position sizes because we talked about earlier risk and managing position sizes. These things can be very volatile. 
So, you know, I, I typically don't hold them overnight for very, you know, for, for, for often, unless I have a, you know, sometimes I'll put a trailing stop in, uh, but you know, for that kind of seating and that's I'm differentiating their trading versus investing. Cause you know, I'm talking about short timeframes, you know, I'll trade those. Sometimes I'll trade proxies to it too. Right. Like I've noticed that Mara has positive beta to Bitcoin and Riot has negative beta to Bitcoin. So maybe on a popcorn day, I'll buy uh, some Mara options or some commons and, Maybe on a bad day, I'll short some uh, riot or buy some puts or, you know, it kind of depends on the strategy you're, you're playing. But um, ultimately with crypto, I think it's undeniable that it has a future in the world of finance, especially blockchain. Um, I also think that we can't discount the possibility of disruption from central authorities like the Federal Reserve and the uh, Bank of International Settlements and ECB and so forth and, and you know, China's uh, own regime. Because these are eventually going to be perhaps accurately as competition to the entrenched uh, sort of uh, financial system. And, uh, you know, that at some point uh, there may be increasing regulatory pressure or, or even worse. I know some countries have even banned crypto in its entirety. So that is a risk factor, you know, whether it's near term, intermediate term or long term, it never happens. But it's one we always have to keep in mind with, uh, with all this technology. And you notice with a lot of large corporations, they're filing patents for blockchain. You know, you've got banks doing it, technology companies doing it, all sorts of different companies, insurance companies filing patents for blockchain. So if you search the patent database, you'll see that, that blockchain is very much a real uh, component of financial engineering moving forward. I, I think it's going to increase. And, you know, some of it, what you see moving forward, especially in some of these corporate uh, versions of it, it's not going to be tied to any sort of cryptocurrency. It's, it's going to be tied more to whatever function they're attempting to facilitate. And I, I think there was even, uh, in, maybe it was in Sweden, if memory serves, there was one country where they were using blockchain to actually manage their property records. So, you know, we're already starting to see some real world implementations of it. And uh, I think that's something to pay close attention to as the opportunities start to grow. We'd like to thank Markets and Mayhem and the community for a great conversation. To stay informed of upcoming conversations, subscribe to the Investorly newsletter at investorly.substack.com. Investorly, invest early in yourself.